here we go. This is the Skip Bayless Show, episode six, How Time Flies. This, as I always tell you, is the un-undisputed. This is everything I cannot share with you during a two and a half hour go for the throat debate show. On today's Skip Bayless show, I'm about to tell you what drives me the craziest about my man, LeBron James. And then I'm gonna tell you why my man, Eric Dickerson, the Rambassador, truly stunned and offended me on Undisputed the other day by accusing me of having something personal against Matthew Stafford. And then I'm gonna tell you how Terrell Owens has done it again to me. He has gone to war with me again, this time concerning Odell Beckham Jr. And finally, today I'm gonna go way inside my ongoing battle with my debate partner, Shannon Sharp, over Aaron Donald. And as always, on today's show, I'm gonna work in several questions from you. Your provocative and your probing questions, I will attempt to answer along the trail today. But first up, as always, we start with not to be skipped. As I just mentioned, my next three topics are all Super Bowl related, but I'm sorry, I couldn't resist starting with this, my pettest peeve about LeBron James, which was on, by the way, full display last Saturday night on live national TV via ABC the night before said Super Bowl. Look, LeBron James is a great basketball player. We could go on all day and all night. Is he top five? Is he top 10? I'll leave that for another Skip Bayless show. All I know for sure is that what drives me the craziest about the all-time great LeBron James is that he's a lousy free throw shooter and I cannot comprehend why. LeBron, it's, it's called a free throw for a reason. It's free and easy to make a free throw for one point and then make another one for two points. And maybe if you get fouled on a three-point attempt as you did last Saturday night, you might just make one, two, and three to force overtime, but you can't because you're a lousy free throw shooter. Career, 73.4% from the free throw line. LeBron, you're so much better than that. That is so beneath your dignity. The greatest player ever, Michael Jeffrey Jordan. I had the honor and pleasure of covering him in Chicago through the last dance season in 1998. Michael wasn't the greatest free throw shooter, but he was 83.5, so, so he was 10 percentage points more than LeBron. Do you know what that is? That's the Grand Canyon of a gulf between LeBron and Michael. And then we go up the ladder. There was Magic. He was at 84.8. There was Larry Bird at 89%. There's Kevin Durant at 88%. And then, of course, there's a Steph Curry way up there at 91%. They're called free throws. 
And for the life of me, I've never understood why LeBron wouldn't commit just one offseason, now that we're in year 19, to figuring out how to shoot at least 80% from the free throw line. You're a superstar, and you can't make your free throws. I'm sorry, but the free throws and his nightmare at the late game free throw line is what disqualifies LeBron for me from any GOAT conversation. You're, you're over and you're out. Because as I've often said on Undisputed, as I've often tweeted, just once I'd like to see LeBron post on social instead of his warrior weight workout. Look at me, lifting weights, pumping the whole gym. I got it. I, I, I'm, I'm impressed. Just once, I'd like to see LeBron post a video of him out in the backyard with Bronny practicing free throws. I know that seems beneath your dignity, LeBron. You're a Hollywood mogul. But there's a way to get a shot doctor coach. There's a way to commit through an offseason. There's a way, while you're making that, that awful Space Jam 2, I can't even say it. While you're doing that, you, you, you got to sit between takes, you're in your trailer, you could go shoot free throws. You could just figure it out. If you need a some sort of psychological coach, if the demons have got you, I, it, whatever, you should be improving. And by the way, for the last five seasons, you shot under 70%. I, I'm going to give you a small break this season you're up a little bit. You're up a tick. You're at 74.6%. But guess what, big man? That ranks 83rd of 106 qualified free throw shooters this year. 83rd of 106? And somebody who sits across from me every day at the debate desk dares to call you the GOAT? It's abominable. It's, it's embarrassing. It's, it, in the end, it's just blasphemous. It's such a waste of your talent. And by the way, before I proceed to my point, understand LeBron is also a career 34.5% three-point shooter. And this year, you're a tick up at 352 uh, That ranks, if I can, that's 97th of 156 qualified three-point shooters. So you're a little better from three, but not much. And that's going to bring me to my point in just a moment. Since LeBron entered this league, he's missed 16 what are termed clutch free throws. That's a mountain of missed clutch free throws because these are the ones 10 seconds or less with the game at two points one way or the other. J.R. Smith is next on that list at eight. So LeBron's at 16, J.R. Smith obviously now retired at eight. And just field goals missed in the last 10 seconds of a close game. LeBron is at, since he came into the league, 102. That's 25 more than Dwayne Wade. And by the way, Russell West Brick. And then we get to three-point shots taken in the last two seconds of games. Two points, one way or the other. And LeBron is actually five behind Russell West Brick, his backcourt, backcourt partner right now in brick masonry. So Russ is at 52 since LeBron came into the league. That leads in those, and LeBron's five behind. 
not all that pretty. Here's my bottom line. I've been saying this since my days on cold pizza, which went from 2004 to 2006. LeBron James runs from the late game free throw line. He's got some Ben Simmons going on before we even knew about Ben Simmons, psychological demons running from the late game free throw line. LeBron has the highest IQ in basketball, so he's genius at avoiding that late game line. And he avoids it because he just wasn't born with a clutch gene. I've said this for years and years, for at least 15 of his 19 years, I've said on national TV, no clutch gene, especially at that late game free throw line. That's his ultimate nightmare. Conversely, when I covered Michael Jordan, remember on that playoff run, late 1998, I used to be allowed into the gym late and practices. I remember went at Indiana in that seven game knockdown drag out that Michael had with Reggie Miller's team coached by Larry Bird. I used to watch Michael shoot free throws for money. I don't know how much money, but if I know him, it was well into the thousands shooting teammates. One day I witnessed LeBron beating teammates out of whatever money they were betting. LeBron was shooting free throws blindfolded, left-handed. True story. I saw it. I witnessed it. I don't know the exact dollar amount that he won, but it seemed like a ton because everybody else was like rolling on the wooden floor after he made yet another left-handed, blindfolded free throw. Free throw. It, it irks me because LeBron James is, is so gifted Mentally, he, he has such a command of basketball that he now knows that he has to take deep threes to avoid the late game free throw line. He's the greatest driver of the basketball in the history of the game. I've said it a thousand times on live national TV. He's still 6'9", must go 260. He might be 270 now. He is unstoppable to the rim. Late game situations, they, they can't defend him. They could only foul him. But you know what's going to happen. You're going to have to go there by yourself and stand 15 feet away with nobody helping you, nobody to pass to. You can't make the right play. I'm going to pass it to George Hill because I don't want to shoot this 15-foot jump shot against Golden State in game one 2018 at Oracle. I'm going to pass it to George Hill. And then he gets to go to the free throw line and do what I should have done. I should have just taken the shot. It was a win or lose shot. Game one, they had him on the ropes. LeBron was as hot as I've ever seen him from outside. All he had to do, he got the switch, got Steph on him, little Steph on 6'9", LeBron, 6'3", versus 6'9". Just shoot the shot. I don't know, would he foul you? Well, that'd be your worst nightmare, but shoot the jump shot. You got a hot hand. It's it's down one, so it's going to be do or die. No, I'm going to pass it to George Hill and let him go to the free throw line and gag one. So what usually happens, well, you saw what happened this year earlier at Indiana into regulation. He's just going to pull off, pull up and take a, a, a monstrous, like almost a logo three to win or lose the game because then his billions of blind witnesses – his apologists can then say, ah, well, 
that was a hard shot. I know he missed it, but man, that was a deep three. You got to give him a break. You got to let him off the hook for that. No, I don't. You were down one. You could have just driven it. You could have shot the free throws. If you're down one, if you could just make one of two free throws, at least you get to overtime. No, he missed it. And then a couple of nights later, it's Sacramento at home. That was at Indiana. And LeBron managed to miss a deep three at the end of regulation to win the game. And then a deep three at the end of the first overtime to win the game. And it went two overtimes and they lost to Sacramento. Come on, LeBron, you're just so much better than this. Which brings me to Saturday night. At Golden State, Lakers arguably played their best overall game of the year against a very good team. They were right there, just a point down going to the fourth quarter, and LeBron had a brutal fourth quarter, arguably the worst of his career. Russ was on his best behavior. He just stayed out of the way. He had one turnover for the whole night. He took two threes for the whole night, did Russell West brick, made one of them. You can live with that. But LeBron went one for 10 in the fourth quarter, including three turnovers. It was just so not LeBron, but he got a break, quote unquote. At the end of the game, clock's ticking down. He's going to try a three. You're down three. Pressure's a little bit off that point because it's not really do or die. It's you got to take a three in, in that case, and you're going to make it or miss it. Hopefully you, you make it. At least you're going to overtime, right? And Steph commits a blunder. The irony was Steph actually did foul LeBron. He was supposed to do the take foul just to kill some of the clock. And I thought he got him before LeBron went into this shooting motion. So it was actually a bad call that turned into a blunder by Steph, but it was a bad call. And LeBron is kind of screaming for the call for a second, and then he's looking around like, oh, bleep, what did I just force myself into? Well, it's his worst nightmare. Now that you got the shooting motion call, you got to go stand there by yourself and make three free throws to tie. It's just impossible. We've seen situations like this before that he has found himself in, and it was painful to watch. I, I, from, from my heart, I pitied him. I knew what was coming. I turned to my wife, Ernestine. She was sort of half watching. I said, this is going to be hard to watch. First free throw attempt. It's one of these. And he, he sort of leaned to the left. And as he shot it, he stepped across the line. It, it was just an all-time choke job. I pitied him. LeBricked. It had no chance. Now, obviously, all bets are off. No pressure. He made the second one. Now you have to miss the third one. He shot it way up into the rafters. It was a cool shot. It was a smart shot. It was a genius shot. And he actually managed to track down the rebound over near the, the scoring table and, and sort of fell out of bounds and shot one that was just like impossible. But, but at least he pulled that off because that's high IQ. So 
in the end, I say it once more, it, it hurts my heart to watch this because LeBron is a great basketball player who can't do the simplest thing in basketball, make free throws. And I'm saying it publicly. If you're watching LeBron, you're better than that. Let's take a question from the audience, shall we? Aha. Jack from Pomona, California asks, what is your issue with Sean McVay? All he does is win. Shouldn't that be all that matters? Asked Jack. Jack, Sean McVay flat out annoys me. And my point is, the reason I bring it up on TV and I brought it up on last week's podcast was I believe he just annoys the hell out of his Rams players that he coaches. They are the Hollywood stars. They play the game. Sean just coaches the game. Yet, it's clear to me that Sean wants to be the face of the franchise and the center of attention at every single moment. I'm just not sure that plays that great in the locker room. I can't take it away from what happened Sunday because they won. But I'm going to remind you what happened the day Tom Brady visited earlier this season, visited so fine stadium. What happened? 75-yard touchdown pass happened to a receiver who's no longer obviously with the Rams, Deshaun Jackson, favorite of mine. 75 yards, and Sean McYay, as I call him, did something I've never, ever in all my years covering the National Football League or college football, high school football, I've never seen a coach do this. He sprints the length of the sideline and up the tunnel to congratulate a receiver who was soon to be cut by the Rams. Really? Coach McYay, that's a high school move. It's definitely a look at me move. So we could argue all day about his game plan Sunday Super Bowl. Did he run too much? They went 23 times and managed 43 total yards. How they won that game doing that, I don't know. That's 1.9 yards per attempt. Maybe he hung on too long to the run game. Maybe Matthew Stafford took him off the hook with that last-ditch drive. All I know is, once they won that game, barely, Coach McKay was all over the field, photobombing interviews being done by his stars, his Hollywood stars. I look up, it's Matthew Stafford and Cooper Cup being interviewed. Obviously, Cooper Cup, Super Bowl MVP, Matthew Stafford, star of the moment, and photobombing is Coach McYay. His head pops in between them. Hey, everybody, he's photobombing. Want to ask me a question? No, not really. They're trying to ask the quarterback and his receiver. No, no, really not. I look up a few minutes later and It's Aaron Donald, a potential MVP candidate in the Super Bowl. And it's Von Miller, who is also actually a potential MVP candidate in the Super Bowl. And photobombing, 
popping up between them was Coach McYay. Hey, everybody, look at me. You want to ask me a question? Not really. We were talking to Aaron Donald, but we will. We'll go ahead and ask you, Coach. He just can't help himself. And I can't help talking about this on national TV. I got nothing personal against him. I've just been doing this for too long. Trust me, that kind of egomania in your young head coach over time will not play well in your Los Angeles Rams locker room. Monday, on Undisputed, day after the Super Bowl, we had our man Eric Dickerson on. As I call him, I nicknamed him the Rambassador. And I felt like we'd gone back and forth all season about the Rams, he ripping my Cowboys, me scoffing at his Rams. And I felt like we owed him a moment or two to gloat about his then Super Bowl champion, Los Angeles Rams. Obviously, I didn't mind gloating briefly about the $500 he lost to me on the game because he gave me Cincinnati plus 21 points. Thank you very much, sir. I I never sweated that. I did pick Cincinnati to win the game 23-21. to I thought they had a real shot. I think they got absolutely robbed by a call that came with a minute and 47 seconds left in the game. It's not my point to go into this right now, but if you heard me on Undisputed, that was not holding. Our man Mike Pereira at Fox said that was not holding. And yet a flag flew, and instead of the Rams facing fourth and goal from the eight, Good luck on converting that, Matt Stafford and Cooper Cup, as much magic as you guys have made. It was first and goal at the one. It's game over. Thank you very much. But $500, not that I'll ever see it from Eric, but as I said on the air, that was $500 worth of pride. So we're sparring. We're going back and forth about this and that. Hey, Eric, you being the greatest running back ever, that's my opinion, How'd you like your Rams totaling 43 rush yards on 23 tries? So we're we're trash-talking each other. And out of the blue, my man Eric Dickerson, ED, hits me with this. You just don't like Matt Stafford, do you? As if I had something personal against Matt Stafford. And it stunned me stopped me in my tracks. It offended me. But again, we're in full debate mode. And it's why I love doing this. I don't have time to stop down and talk Eric through my philosophy of what I do and don't do on my show. Trust me on this. From the bottom of my heart, I take this way too seriously, but this is what I'm all about. This is the essence of me. This is what I am made of. This is why I get so emotional about this, is I just evaluate a player's performance, period, end of story. It doesn't matter whether I like him or I don't like him personally. It factors nothing into my thought process of evaluating his performance. 
I might like a guy, and if he plays poorly, I promise you, I'm going to tell you he played poorly. I might not like a guy for whatever reason, and if he plays great, trust me, I'll rave about him. It's happened thousands of times, millions of times in my career. I owe that to you. And trust me, I take it way too seriously. I'm, I'm not going to betray you. I'm not going to deceive you. I'm not going to sell out because I like somebody or know somebody. I did not get into this business to buddy up to players. I know there are some people that I've dealt with in this business who did. That's the only reason they got into this business. It's not me. It's to a fault, not me. Sometimes my wife, Ernestine, says, why don't you have him on for an interview or him on? Well, he's not going to come on because he's not going to, he doesn't like what I've been saying about him. I don't care. That's not the lifeblood of Undisputed is interviews. It's a debate show. And I don't know how you can debate in full conscience when you get close to this player or that star player or this coach or that GM because you're going to have to protect them. In the debate format, you're going to have to bite your tongue and play dodgeball. You're going to have to sidestep. You're going to have to betray and deceive you to make it through the debate. And I, I just don't play that game. So what do I know about Matt Stafford? Well, once upon a time at the end of the Tim Tebow run, whew, was that some run from me and my career? That was back in 2011 when I was at ESPN on First Take. We took the show to Denver that year. I did the show from a bar early in the morning. It was packed, people hanging from the rafters before they played Tom Brady and company. And Brady just destroyed Tebow that day because Psycho Tom came out. But it was such a wild run that at the end of it, we made a connection with Tebow's people, and, and he said he would like to sit down and do an interview with me at the Super Bowl. Okay, I'm not going to buddy up. I still don't know Tim Tebow. I I'm, haven't had long conversations with him. But we said, okay, we'll do that. They wanted to do it, so we, we were going to meet at the Super Bowl in Indianapolis. It was the second Eli Brady Super Bowl. And... We're doing first take live out of there. And I'm, I'm trying to sort of conduct the whole show on my own. So we had various other people come on live before post show. I was going to sit down with Tebow for like an hour. Well, that day, guess who came on? A Detroit Lion quarterback named Matthew Stafford. And he knew I spent some time in Dallas. He went to Highland Park High School in Dallas. I used to date a woman and went to Island Park, blah, blah, blah. So we're, we're talking in the break and we're having a really good conversation because I got to tell you, I think Matt Stafford's a really good guy. Seriously. I didn't get to know him that well, but he was really a good interview. He really warmed up and opened up and he was, he was trying hard to give me all he could as the Detroit Lions quarterback. And I enjoyed it. I do, I, I just have a vibe that he's he's a pretty good, he might be a really good guy. And then guess what? I'm a member 
at a country club here, a golf club for me. That's all I do is play golf there. Don't have much time for socializing. It's called Brentwood Country Club. It's right down the street from where LeBron lives, or at least the last time I checked, he still lived there. I'm not sure if they've moved to Beverly Hills, but that's where he first located in LA. It's just a couple of blocks away from Brentwood. And four or five months ago, six months ago, Matt Stafford obviously relocates to LA. And out of the blue, he joins Brentwood Country Club. I don't know him, haven't seen him there. I probably will run into him now, but put me in a little bit of an awkward spot because I just haven't believed in Matt Stafford's ability to win on the Hollywood stage. And as I started to say on Undisputed, the Matt Stafford I've followed very closely in Detroit, where he went 74, 90, and 1 with Megatron as his primary receiver, was known as a big play playmaker and a big mistake mistake maker. On that Hollywood stage, it can be a lethal combination. So what did Matt Stafford do this first regular season with the Rams? He led the NFL in interceptions. He also led the league with four pick sixes. It's hard to throw two or three. Four is really hard to do, but he managed to throw four. And then what happened in the big playoff game after they'd lost six in a row to their arch-rival 49ers? NFC Championship game, nine minutes left in the fourth quarter. What happened? Matt Stafford did what I thought he was going to do. He threw it right down the middle of the field to nobody. Not sure if it was to Odell on the left or Van Jefferson on the right. He split the difference, and he threw it to Jaquaski Tart, the safety for the 49ers. Hit him right in the breadbasket. Looked like he was primary receiver on the play. I, I don't know how you could have thrown it and hit him any better than right here. And Tart dropped it. I think he dropped the Super Bowl for the 49ers. They were up 17 to 14 at that moment. And I think a momentum swings so wildly back in their favor. By the way, I think Tart could have run with it little ways. I don't know, maybe 15, 20 yards the other direction. And he just dropped it. And he let Matt Stafford off the hook. So let's fast forward to last Sunday's Super Bowl. What did he do? Well, he threw two interceptions. One was just a go for broke, what are you thinking, Matt, interception that Jesse Bates picked off in front of Van Jefferson on a fling to the deep corner of the end zone. That's that guy. And then another one, he threw behind Skoranek and it gets tipped up in the air, and my little man, Awuzie, once a Dallas Cowboy, picked it off because that's what the Bengals have been doing. They were hot, opportunistically hot on defense. So he did throw two picks. Cincinnati did not turn it over one time because Joe Burrow gets sacked, but he does not spit the bit. He does not sack, fumble. So the turnover battle was won two to nothing by the Bengals. Super Bowl teams coming into this Super Bowl were 38-5 and five when they won the turnover battle. 
They're now 38 and six. Matt Stafford let off the hook. Matt Stafford let off the hook by the aforementioned penalty. It was not holding on Cooper Cup. It was a pass breakup at the goal line, and it should have stood as a pass breakup. It should have been fourth and goal from the eight. I don't know if Matt Stafford could have pulled that off. I don't know if he could have ridden the magic carpet to Cooper Cup again. I doubt it. And, and if he doesn't, Cincinnati's going to win that game 20 to 16 because they're going to run it three times. And they're going to punt it. And there's not going to be that much time left, under a minute left, for them to go the distance to score a touchdown, not a field goal, because they would be down 20 to 16 because they botched the extra point. So Matt Stafford had scored all of 16 points until a minute 30 remained, and they got the break of the game on the call. The same call that Jalen Ramsey late in the first quarter got away with. Jalen's was a grab of the jersey. It was actually an undershirt of T. Higgins. He grabbed his undershirt and held it, pulled himself, catapulted himself across T. Higgins to break the pass up. They didn't see it. They didn't call it. So in the biggest picture, this is so dear to my heart because I love my debate partner, Shannon Sharp, and I love what he's been saying about Antonio Brown on the air. He said two or three times, that his followers on Twitter, Instagram, keep saying something to him like, Shannon, you got to lay off AB. You got to support the black players more. And and Shannon is defiant about, I'm not going to, I don't care what color he is, I'm not going to support him if he behaves that way, if he melts down the way he did at Jets, that walk-off meltdown. Shannon's been all over AB for years. Our first year together at the Super Bowl 2016 in Houston, we had AB on the show and Shannon went after him. Go, Shannon, go. I love you for that. Objectivity. Conversely with me, I, I don't care what color you are. I don't care whether I like you or not. I just react to what I see. I say what I see about how you're performing. If you look at my history, Aaron Rodgers. Have I been hard on him? Yeah. If you look at my history, how about Carson Wentz, as I call him? I wince when I watch him play. I think he's about to be an ex-Colt. Yeah, I've been hard on him. Andrew Luck, I said from the start, I thought Robert Griffin would be a little better than Andrew Luck, and he was for a year, one rookie of the year, and then he tore his knee up, and that was the end of RG3 or RG me as we knew and loved him. But it just doesn't matter. I'm going to say what I see. So, Eric, you got to understand me. You know how I was when I covered you and Eric, uh, um, is Eric Dixon, Craig James, as SMU, the Pony Express. Eric knew me back then. He, he knows what I'm all about. I thought, I'm just going to tell the truth. Let's take another question from the audience, shall we? Let's try Drew from Battle Creek, Michigan. I think I've taken a question, Drew, from you before. So you must be do doing something very right here. How could you say Ram fans are the worst in sports when your Cowboys play in the same division as the Eagles? Boom. 
So, Drew, I think you're referring to the Eagles fans' notorious misbehavior. The Eagles fans, once upon a time, long ago, not only booing Santa Claus, but pelting him with snowballs, right? Okay, I got that. I know in my years in Dallas, when the Cowboy franchise would take groups of fans on the road, big groups of fans, bus, you know, fly them and then bus them to games in big packages, big parties of fans. The one place they would tell all their fans, you cannot wear Dallas garb is Philadelphia. It's just too dangerous. If you identify yourself as Cowboy fans, bad stuff could happen. So I get that. But Drew, we're, we're talking about extreme passion of the Eagles fans. And you can't not love their passion. You, you can love that it spills over into misbehavior, into sometimes criminal misbehavior. I got that. But you want to talk about passion? They might be at the top of the list in passionate support of their teams in Philadelphia. What I'm talking about with the Rams is, is actually lack of passion. Rams fans, lowest passion in sports to me because most Rams fans I've known over the many years, and I was here in the 70s for three years at the LA Times, most Rams fans I know were Dodgers fans first and foremost, and maybe Lakers fans second, and Rams fans third. I could throw the Kings in there somewhere, but that's sort of the pecking order. And obviously, in LA, there's just so much else to do. The ocean is five minutes from SoFi Stadium. The mountains are about two hours from SoFi. I'm talking about snow skiing mountains, two hours away. And on Super Bowl Sunday, it was almost 90 degrees in LA. There's just so much else to do. So as I've said about Rams fans, they mostly at games I covered back in the 70s, back in the day when they were winning the division every year, they won five straight divisions under Chuck Knox. They mostly at the old Coliseum sat on their hands. They waited for the team to inspire them instead of them sparking and igniting the team. They wait to be entertained because this is the capital of entertainment. You entertain the Rams fans and then they'll cheer for you. Well, to me, that makes them the worst in passion because it's instead of die hard, it's die easy, right? And speaking of die hard here in Hollywood, one of my all-time favorite movies is Die Hard, great Christmas movie. That's another discussion for another day. But every morning on the way to work to the Fox lot, I, I get to pass Nakatomi Tower on Avenue of the Stars. It's Hollywood, baby. It's everywhere. I'm in Hollywood heaven. So the Rams are somewhere down the pecking order in entertainment value. Yeah, they just won the Super Bowl. So everybody's on board. Yay. Brentwood Country Club is sending out a big email on Sunday night. Congratulations, Matthew Stafford. And I loved it. I hope to get to play golf with, with Matt someday. And God bless all you Rams fans out there. And I hope you're back next year if they start off three and seven.
<sighs> We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Bayless. Just go to Indeed.com slash Bayless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Bayless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Here I go again. I probably should not fall into the Terrell Owens trap again, but I can't help myself and neither can Terrell. We have had this discussion, Terrell and I, too many times to count on live national TV face-to-face. I have actually come to like Terrell. I have. I congratulated him face-to-face on Undisputed for finally getting into the Hall of Fame. Congratulations. Wouldn't be in my Hall of Fame, but congratulations because you were really great at what you did. I didn't love the rest of it, which I'm about to get to, but here we go again because just when I thought we had made peace with each other, this happened. A tweet from Terrell Owens concerning me and Odell. Terrell starts out. Facts, all caps with three exclamation points, and then 100 in red, as in keep it 100. At Browns, at Baker Mayfield, are some suckers, says T.O. At Real Skip Bayless, that's me, always and forever, capitalized, creating, capitalized, false narratives about certain players, all caps. He did it for years about me. And people believed it. So happy for at OBJ, tweeted T.O. Okay, so T.O. is saying that always and forever, I've been creating false narratives about certain players, that I did it for years about him, and people believed it. T.O., I try to love you, man. I do. I try from the bottom of my heart but I'm sorry, you and Odell created your own narratives. I I simply commented on said narratives many times. I I just reacted. I didn't pre-act. I didn't make up the narrative. I just reacted to the narrative. (sighs) So just briefly, now that you've pushed my button, forgive me for this, but I got to run back through my my history with T.O. I was in the Bay Area. He was a 49er. I liked him. In fact, I loved him. I think I was the lone voice in the Bay Area who supported him. What a player. Played with such rage, run after catch rage. 
I wrote glowingly positive columns about one Terrell Owens. I, I even had a big interview, a long interview. It was actually on the phone, but he called me back and we talked for an hour. I think he liked me. I don't know, but he was very willing to spill and he did. And he spilled all over the 49ers and I ran with it and that's, that's fine. I did what I did and I stand by it and I don't regret it, but I must admit several of the 49er leaders, black and white, began to pull me aside and say, what are you doing? You, you have no idea what this guy is behind closed locker room doors. He's a nightmare. He's tearing our team apart. Really? Okay. So I opened my eyes. I opened my ears. I opened my heart. And I'll never forget the game back after 9-11 at Candlestick against the then arch-rival St. Louis Rams, a dominating team, as you recall, in 2001. Rams won the game in large part because our man T.O. dropped two or three huge passes in that game. It so affected him that he sat at his locker almost comatose after the game while the media throng just stood waiting for him to speak. And as I recall, I don't think he ever spoke after that game. He just stared into his locker and wouldn't comment. Terrell led the league in drops three different times. And I'll never forget a game at Chicago, a game that the 49ers led, then blew it, trailed, and lost to a pretty mediocre Bears team coached by Dick Geron, who was then a friend or is a friend of Steve Mariucci, then the coach of the 49ers. And Terrell just went off after the game on Mariucci, saying he took his foot off the gas and basically threw the game to his dear friend Dick Geron. I can tell you for a fact, the late, great Terry Donahue, then GM of the 49ers, not happy with that. I think it was the last straw for Terry with T.O. And then the next thing was T.O. went after Jeff Garcia, and I think it was a Playboy interview, and took a really low blow personal shot at Jeff. And then he began to campaign for Jeff's removal from starting quarterback in favor of Tim Rattay, the backup. And it just went completely off the rails to the point that Terry Donahue said, more trouble than he's worth. Great player, more trouble than he's worth. I got to get him out of here. And he winds up trading him to Philly. And I think you remember what happened. First training camp, T.O. and Donovan McNabb, best friends, soulmates, roommates. And then it all went wrong. It exploded the way no friendship has ever maybe exploded in, in the history of pro football. It got ugly between the two of them. It's too much for this. I could go on talking about what went on behind the scenes for another hour and we don't have it, but that team began to split over T.O. And there are always players who love him and there are always players who just find him impossible to live with. And that team began to fracture. And that, once again, is why I nicknamed Terrell T.O. Team Obliterator. He was obliterating another team. Here we went. 
and he got into it, Brad Childress, then his offensive coordinator. And then I was told that he had a near fight in the training room, actually around the Whirlpool with Hugh Douglas. And I was told, even talked to Hugh about this when I worked with him at ESPN, that Terrell wanted no part of that showdown. And it got so bad, as you probably remember, that the Eagles suspended T.O. and sent him home, sent him away, and finally just dumped him and said, way more trouble than he's worth. Did, did I create that narrative, Terrell? Did I? I don't think I created the San Francisco narrative or the Philly narrative or the Dallas narrative. So Jerry Jones says, I'm taking a shot. He's box office. Get your popcorn ready. Despite the fact that the Hall of Fame coach Bill Parcells, then coaching my Dallas Cowboys, wanted no part of Terrell Owens, wouldn't even speak his name, called him the player. Terrell protested, rebelled. Remember in training camp, he wound up with a Lance Armstrong costume on on the exercise bike on the sideline. That was pretty much the end of him and Parcells. There was a confrontation within receivers coach Todd Haley. T.O. thought that Tony Romo was favoring in targets his good buddy, Jason Witten. I was told by a player who witnessed it before practice one day, Jason Witten approached T.O. and said, okay, you and me right here, right now, let's just settle it, shall we? And I was told by that player, T.O. wanted no part of that. And he was probably wise not to want any part of that because I don't think he could have whipped either Hugh Douglas or Jason Witten. But it kept coming to that. And as you remember, the Cowboys just flat out cut Terrell Owens. They cut him. False narrative? I, I don't think so. So we had the 49ers and the Eagles and the Cowboys, all three really good teams. Th those are three potential at that point Super Bowl teams. Seriously, I know them. Traded, suspended and cut, cut. Is that a Hall of Fame resume? Not for me, but what he did on the field was spectacular. And to Terrell's credit, nothing off the field in the way of any misbehavior, no police blotter stuff, nothing like that. It's all in the locker room, in the huddle, on the sideline. Remember his rant against Greg Knapp. It's ranting up and down. It was at Minnesota in a game he faced Randy Moss, and, man, and Randy Moss was just terrorizing the 49ers that day. It's, it's, I, I didn't do that, Terrell. You did that, which brings me to Odell. I, I didn't do anything to make Odell act up and act out as a giant. He did all that. You remember all the conflicts and the confrontations on the field and the suspension and the kicking net and proposing to the kicking net and Tom Coughlin losing his mind as Odell lost his on the field. And then Odell, before his first and only playoff game to that point, 
he took his receivers on the off day ahead of a playoff game on the frozen tundra at Lambeau Field. He took his receivers to South Beach to spend the day on Trey Song's yacht, sunning themselves to get ready for a cold weather playoff game. It made no sense. It was the last straw for the Giants. Or maybe it was the hotel room video from Paris with the model and the white powder. Odell did not partake as far as we know, but it was there and it was on video. Was that the last straw? Not sure which one of those qualified, but Odell goes to the playoff game that day. Eli comes out, playoff Eli, hot. Remember, third and seven, first drive. Odell right in his hands and he dropped it. Later in the game, back of the end zone, hit him right in the hands, dropped it. Odell, brilliantly, I should say, after the game, marches up the tunnel toward the visitor's locker room, takes his helmet and bashes the wall in. New York media fixated on hole in wall left by Odell and kind of let him off the hook about his glaring drops and taking those receivers to South Beach to get ready for the game on the frozen tundra. Did, did I make any of that up, Terrell? I don't think so. I, I'm pretty sure I didn't. And then Cleveland happened, and because the Giants just said, that's enough. It's, he's more trouble than he's worth. Let's just ship him out to Cleveland. Odell didn't ever want to be a Cleveland Brown. You know it, and I know it. And I've tried to point out and point up the fact to diffuse what happened in Cleveland. Remember, Odell, his last year as, as a giant, he had all kinds of issues with his ankle. Then it required surgery, and he missed much of that last season. Then he goes to Cleveland 2019. He missed the back half of the season with a groin injury that turned into a sports hernia that needed surgery. So there's two surgeries. And then you know what happened in 2020 in Cleveland, week seven at, fatefully, Cincinnati. Odell ruptured his ACL. How weird that he hurt his ACL again this time in the Super Bowl against Cincinnati. But I, I didn't make this up. I, I didn't preact. I reacted to the fact that Baker Mayfield, who had been trying to force the football consistently to Odell because he loved Odell, that, that Baker Mayfield's game just took off as soon as Odell went out. I don't think it was a coincidence. Am I making this up, Terrell? I don't think so because Baker goes on a tear, the best tear of his career. They go eight and three over the last 11 games. He throws 20 touchdown passes to three interceptions. He wins a playoff game against the arch rival Steelers in Pittsburgh by putting up 48 points and has a QBR scale zero to 100 of 91. What a run for Baker Mayfield. And then Odell comes back for the start of this season. And what happens to Baker in week two against the Texans at Cleveland? He tears the labrum in his, his left shoulder and he's a wreck the rest of the year. Should have the surgery immediately, didn't, had it a couple of days after the season ended. He was a mess. Odell was a mess. Odell dropped two big fourth down passes in the first few games. He didn't want to be there. Baker shouldn't have been playing. It was a disaster. And so the Cleveland Browns just cut Odell Beckham Jr. They cut him. Hadn't made a Pro Bowl in six years. I, I'm not making this up. I'm just telling you the truth. 
So what does he do? He goes on the open market, and I thought he would go home to New Orleans. They don't have Mike Thomas. They needed Odell desperately. I know they don't have a clear-cut quarterback. Jameis was obviously hurt his knee and was gone. Is it Trevor? Is it Taysom Hill? It's, it's, I know it was a mess, but I still thought if Odell wants to be a, a true number one, go there. No. If you want to be a true number two to a really good receiver, Devontae Adams, go to Green Bay and catch passes from Aaron Rodgers. Nope. He chose to go to Hollywood, which is fine because you can make a lot of money off the field, but he went for minimum money, incentive-laden contract, and he agreed not to be the number one receiver because that's obviously Cooper Cup on his way to being the offensive player the, the whole year in the NFL, had the, the most extraordinary season any receivers had in the history of the NFL. He agreed not to be number two because that was Robert Woods until Robert, the day after Odell signed, wrecked his ACL. But Odell agreed to vie for the number three receiver with the Rams with Van Jefferson, who's pretty good. He'd had one game, he'd caught six balls for 90 yards. So he's pretty good, young, fast receiver. Well, what's that all about? And as I mentioned last week's podcast, I have a source close to Odell who confided in me, hey, the truth is about Odell, he's more of a B-side. He doesn't have those sort of number one receiver intangibles. He's much more comfortable being complimentary. And that's why he chose the Rams, that he's more of a Robin dressed like Batman than a Batman. And so it was a brilliant move by Odell because he started off very slowly in those first eight games. 3.4 catches a game over those last eight for a grand total of 38 yards average per game receiving. And then right on schedule, as the Rams took off, so did Odell. And bully for him. I was happy for him. He started to look like a true number two receiver because Cooper Cup is off the charts, never seen anything like him. It's, It's inexplicable to me how great Cooper Cup was. He's uncoverable. Three defenders can't stop him. Matt Stafford had such trust in him. He's going to try anything at any moment to get the ball to Cooper Cup. And Odell flourished. He was able to shine in the shadow of Cooper Cup. And I loved it for him because it was smart. Know who you are. Know who you're not. And he did. And and it got me. It hurt my heart that he hurt his ACL on a pass from Matthew Stafford that, by the way, it was behind him. That's the Matt Stafford I don't love in some big moments. But he jabbed his foot wrong and the ACL, I'm I'm not sure if it's torn or not. I I talked to someone who saw Odell at a post-game party who said he was dancing, looked like he was moving pretty well. That doesn't mean the ACL wasn't torn, but I haven't heard any validation, verification that it is torn, but he heard it and he was gone for the rest of the game. And yet, I'm back to T.O.'s tweet. Always and forever, I'm creating false narratives. I did it for years about you, T.O., and people believed it. Maybe they believed it because it was just the truth. I made up nothing. I reacted. I did not preact. And whether you believe it or not, Terrell, I still love you, man. I do. I've come to love you, and I don't want to go to war with you. 
Let's make peace. You said your peace. I said my peace. Let's make peace. <sighs> Let's take one more of your questions, shall we? Let's go to Blake from New Jersey. Hmm. Does your workout schedule vary depending on how you're feeling? Okay, I'll dive. Absolutely not. Zero, period, end of discussion. The way I'm built is, the more tired I am, the harder I push. It's the way I'm built because my motto is never miss. I believe that one day off leads to another day off, leads to two or three days off, leads to, I, I don't know what happened. I just haven't worked out for a while. We're all born with the couch potato inside us, and I don't want to let mine get out and take over. And the truth is that oftentimes, seriously, some of my best weight workouts come when I just don't feel like lifting weights. When I finish this, I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna lift weights. And I probably won't feel like it, but then sometimes it just clicks and suddenly you're like, what just happened? I defeated my couch potato and my real self just took over and this, this is feeling pretty good. I, I did a big photo shoot the other day and a long sit down interview with Men's Health. And I told the interview something I'll tell you right now. I know exactly the last time I missed a cardio workout. It was May 3rd of 1998. It was game one of Charlotte versus the Bulls during the last dance playoff run, their second round playoff series. I was fairly new to Chicago and I still didn't have a doctor yet and I got sick because it was still snowing in May. And I was running outside every day along the, the lake shore. And I just got my big sinus infection. I was, I was down and out. My literary agent lives in Chicago. And I talked to her on the phone that Sunday morning. It was a Sunday game, Sunday afternoon. And I just said, I just don't know if I can go today. And she said, well, why not just miss this day? Okay, this day I'll miss. And I hated myself for it. I went to work. I covered the game. I wrote my column on the game, but I just never felt right. So I will admit to you, I have a built-in motivation that you probably don't. I live for cardio because cardio helps me win debates. As simple as that. Every day I'm up at 2 a.m. LA time because I used to get up at 5 East Coast time to do first take. But I'm up at 2, by 2.30, I'm on the treadmill every single day. I'm going to do an hour because I've got to watch the, the loop of the sports center anyway. i got to be reading my phone prepping anyway. And I need to get awake and get the endorphins flowing for me in ways I can't unless I actually run. So I'm going to run for an hour and it's going to make me feel so much sharper, so much better about myself when I go at it with Shannon Sharp for two and a half hours. It is grueling on Undisputed. Trust me on this. It is 
physical as well as mental. The battle rages. It's, it's truly unscripted live debate on national TV, and it wears you out both physically and mentally. And I'm, I'm very physical in my presentation. And I just want Shannon to know every day that I'm not going to wear down. I'm not going to wear out. I'm going to be there to the bitter end. And I'll be just as strong on topic 10 as I was in the A block in topic one. It's very important to be very fit to go up against a guy who's very fit, a pro football Hall of Famer in Shannon Sharp. But he knows he can't compete with me cardio-wise because I'm a psycho. And he knows I go at the weights hard. I don't look like him, but, but I look pretty good. I look good enough. I wasn't embarrassed to do a photo shoot for men's health. So the point is that I don't ever vary my workout. I do exactly the same workout every single time because I need to, I want to, I love it. It's me, it's my life, and, and it's part and parcel of how I win debates on Undisputed. Every workout, as I'm lifting today, trust me, in my subconscious, I'm thinking of only one human being, and that is Shannon bleeping sharp. I'm going to finish with this. Speaking of Mr. Sharp, of the topics I've done so far, this is dearest to my heart. My debate partner and I have gone at it. We have done some serious battle over the last couple of years about Aaron Donald. This is the essence of what I do and what I've done low these many years on national TV. I go at it with NFL and NBA Hall of Famers. I go at it with a lot of current NFL and NBA players on whatever the hottest issues are in pro basketball and pro football. And I want you to know that what I'm proudest of, especially with Shannon, is I am not intimidated to do battle with him about the deepest football topics because while Shannon has made his mark as a rare former pro football player who can hit to all fields on a debate show 365 days a year, I would also take pride for myself in the fact that all I've ever heard since I started in this business was from athletes, if you didn't play, you don't know. Baloney. Wrong. I believe that on a daily basis on Undisputed, I display my football knowledge with that Hall of Famer who has extreme football knowledge, but I don't believe he has any more football knowledge than I do. I feel it's a level playing field because I, I was so blessed to learn my football covering Don Shula and the great Bill Walsh, who became a close friend of mine, and Tom Landry, who was distant, but I spent a lot of time around him, and then Jimmy Johnson, 
who did let me in many times and taught me so much of what I know about pro football and all the assistant coaches who worked for all these men, these greats, taught me so much. I feel like I went to football school and in some ways I got to learn more than even Shannon was able to in playing for the two teams that he played for, Denver and Baltimore. And the, the truth is that what I've found is that often the greater the player, the less he knows about actually knowing who can and can't play because often the greatest players are so great, they're so gifted that they can't really see past the end of their own nose. And it, it takes more of an underachiever, I'm, I'm sorry, really an overachiever, somebody who needs to achieve to be able to see who can and can't play. I, I played high school baseball at a fairly high level. I made an all-star team my senior year. I played high school basketball. I was much better earlier. Coach's son started over me my senior year in high school. I got to play a little bit here and there. I was sort of a sixth or seventh man. I didn't play high school football, yet my strong suit has actually become football. I feel like I know which quarterbacks can play coming out of college in, in ways even Shannon can't see. Who do I think is obviously the greatest basketball player ever, the greatest single performer I've ever seen in any sport? It's Michael Jordan. What's happened to him as the team builder, as the personnel director of his basketball team that he owns and operates? Well, he's turned into the, the worst GM in the history of the NBA. I don't even think it's debatable. He just is. And yet, I go back to my Dallas Cowboys. Who built them? Who was their draft master in the 60s and 70s? It was Gil Brandt. I'm sure you've heard of Gil Brandt, even if he's way before your time. But he was known as the draft master of the NFL. Gil Brandt didn't play high school football. What do we see across the landscape in football and basketball and baseball now? We see analytics GMs. We see analytics-based head coaches. They didn't play their sport. They learned their sport. And we see, let's go to basketball. My San Antonio Spurs were built by R.C. Buford. To me, the best GM in basketball, the best team builder. Stole so many draft picks down the, down the line into the second round. Tony Parker, late first. Manu, late second. R.C. Buford was a walk-on football player at Oklahoma State, didn't play basketball. Well, how can that be? Who's the biggest name in the news right now in professional basketball? Well, it's Daryl Morey, now the GM of the Sixers. I, I tried to find out. I don't think he even played high school basketball. He's tall. He's 6'4", but he went to Northwestern, then he went to MIT, and he's brilliant. He's an analytics wizard. You might even say genius, but he didn't play the sport that he presides over. Mike McDaniel, the new coach in Miami of the Dolphins, was a walk-on receiver at Yale, but I couldn't find any stats. I don't think he ever got to play. Well, how does he know how to coach? Well, he learned from the Shanahans. And I got to learn. And 
I am completely comfortable going toe-to-toe with Shannon Sharp when it comes to Aaron Donald. Shannon has continued to try to tell me for two years that Aaron Donald is transcendent. He says, oh, all the Hall of Famers I know, they nod and say, that's the man. He's going to transcend and replace Lawrence Taylor as the greatest defensive player ever. He's on his way. And I'm saying, I'm sorry, I can't see it consistently enough. Lawrence Taylor? I covered that guy. 56 would leap off your screen just about every single play. Remember the LT great soundbite? He's on the sideline before a game. Let's play like a bunch of crazed dogs, he yelled. He played like a crazed dog every play. Aaron Donald's motor doesn't always run that hot. So we got here in LA, we got two ADs. We got one with the Rams and one with the Lakers, AD and Anthony Davis, AD for the Lakers, and both have one small glitch. Their motor doesn't always run hot enough. Maybe it's something about the initials AD, I don't know. But in this case, this Aaron Donald, in his first Super Bowl run, remember when they lost to New England 13-3, to they beat my Cowboys at the Coliseum, then they went to New Orleans, and you could say they stole that game, but they won. And then they lost 13-3 to to Brady and Belichick. And do you realize Aaron Donald was so quiet in those three games, he had zero sacks, zero sacks, and he's transcendent? I started thinking, it's, it's like the art snob who looks at a bunch of paint splashed on a canvas and says, that's deep. And I look and I say, it is? Eludes me. Sometimes Aaron Dahl just eludes me. I I can't see it. You got to show me. I got to see. And he's played five times against my Dallas Cowboys. And obviously, I watch those games extremely closely. He has one sack in five games against my Cowboys. In two of those games, the game ended, and I sat back, and I thought, was Aaron Donald hurt today? Because I don't remember 90. I, I just don't remember him. Oh, says Shannon. Well, he gets doubled. So do all the great ones. So did Reggie White. So did Lawrence Taylor. Get, even when he lined up on the edge, he got chipped by backs. There were always two trying to account for him, for his one, for 56. Well, do I see Aaron Donald disrupt the middle of the line the way Reggie White could? My guy, Charles Haley. He was a terror coming off the edge. Sometimes they move Aaron around, edge rushing, all different spots, all four spots. And I'm saying, Shannon, I'm sorry, I I can't see it. I I see low motor games that, that do nothing for me. And yet, all week leading up to the Super Bowl, all two weeks, Shannon kept predicting Aaron Donald is going to wreck the game. And I said, yeah, he should wreck the game because... Cincinnati is coming in with the single worst offensive line in the history of the Super Bowl. Cincinnati allowed 51 sacks in the regular season, and they were about to allow a total of 19 more through the playoffs. That's 70 total sacks. That's unheard of. I don't know how Joe Burrow's still standing, but he's got the gift of avoiding the quote-unquote kill shot sort of sack, that blindside hit 
that concusses him or fractures a clavicle or breaks ribs or whatever God knows could go wrong for him. He just has a knack for avoiding that. He goes down fairly easily. And yet, I'm looking at what Aaron Donald did in the Super Bowl. Shannon came in on Monday morning saying, that's it, that proves it over and out. He might now be the greatest defensive player ever. Should have been MVP, said Shannon Sharp. No, the heart and soul of that team, the heart and soul of that victory was little number 10, Cooper Cup. I'm sorry, he was the clear-cut MVP. I tweeted it immediately when the game ended, should be MVP, and he was. So help me out here. In the Super Bowl, Aaron Donald had three solo tackles and one assist. Six of his Rams teammates had more tackles than that. In the Super Bowl, Aaron Donald had two sacks, yet so did Von Miller, okay? In the Super Bowl, Aaron Donald had two tackles for losses. Well, so did Von Miller had two. And, and so did that kid, Ernest Jones, who leaped off my screen, number 50. They couldn't block him. He's blitzing like a, like a maniac. Where did he come from? He was hurt for the first two playoff games, and then I didn't see that coming, but that gave them a fifth pass rusher who was just hellaciously unblockable. And then in the Super Bowl, Aaron Donald had three quarterback hits. I'll give you that, but so did Von Miller, and so did Ernest Jones, a rookie from South Carolina's second-round pick. What? Pro Football Focus ranks the Rams' pass rush, the four, the fearsome foursome, as they once called an L.A. pass rush, that's even before my time, ranked it number one in the NFL. Hmm. Okay, so that means Aaron Donald benefits from Von Miller coming off the other edge and Leonard Floyd and Greg Gaines and even Ernest Jones. Well, doesn't that help Aaron Donald rise and shine? I, I would think so. Do you realize in the Super Bowl, Cincinnati's pass blocking line had a 14% pass blocking win rate. That means only 14% of the time Across the board, did they win their blocks? That, that's unheard of bad. I don't know how the score was that close, but it was. And, and yet, I, I gave Shannon this. The play of the game came late in the game by Aaron Donald when it got to be second and one, and Burrow just throws it out. And remember, he, he went 17 yards to Jamar Chase, and then he went nine yards to Tyler Boyd. And all of a sudden, it's second and one, throws it out of bounds deep to nobody. I don't know what that was. And on third and one, this is the play of the game because they hand it to my man from the University of Oklahoma, Samaji P. Ryan. And Aaron Donald just reached out with one arm around the waist of, I don't know what P. Ryan weighs, 240 probably. Just, just grabs him around the waist. And you want to talk about grown man strength? Just stopped him in his tracks, short of the first down. That's the play of the game. So if you want to make a case that was an MVP play, okay, I got it. But that was it. And then the last play, obviously, Aaron Donald is just feasting. He is smelling blood because nobody in that line can block him or anybody else for that matter. And he gets loose one more time and he gets an arm around Joe Burrow who then spins and flings toward Pirine. And again, I, that ball looked catchable to me. Shocked Pirine. He wasn't ready for anything near him. But it was in his catch radius and he was just shell-shocked and didn't even try for the ball as it hit the turf.
game over. Okay, so what did that prove to me? Why did I stand proud on Monday and go toe-to-toe with Shannon about Aaron Donald? Why would I not back off about everything I've said about Aaron Donald? Because he proved nothing to me. Absolutely nothing. He did exactly what he should have done to Cincinnati. Was that LT-like? No. Stop it. Was it Reggie White-like or Charles Haley-like? Please. He just went to work. He actually let his motor run for once for all four quarters. He took over the game in the second half. I will give you all that. But he had a whole lot of help around him, and he had nobody blocking him. And frankly, I don't need to be in the Hall of Fame to see that and say that on Undisputed. That is it for episode six of the Skip Bayless Show. I would like to thank you for listening and or watching. I would really like to thank Jonathan Berger and his all pro team for making this show go. I would love to thank my man, Tyler Korn, for producing and keeping me upright. And in the end, remember, undisputed, every weekday, 9.30 to noon Eastern Time, The Skip Bayless Show, every single week.